I'm Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this is the Theosophia Podcast, a platform for women's voices in theology. You can find us on all the social media outlets and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Check out our Patreon page and consider supporting this Labor of Love podcast for women's empowerment. All right, y'all, two things I wanted to touch on for the week before we dive into today's episode with Reverend Michelle. So I've been thinking a lot lately about astrology. My whole life, it seems like I've had a ton of friends or partners who've been super into astrology. It's always been really fascinating to me, and I'm I'm in the theological camp of, I believe we can glean truth from everything and anything, so I'm always curious about learning about different types of theological and philosophical worldviews. So apparently we've been in this cycle where the planet Mercury is, is in retrograde. I don't know exactly what this means or what it all entails, but my friends have warned me to be careful because it's a really unusually chaotic time. So stay grounded out there, folks. Also, if anyone knows of a woman that's super educated in astrology, I think that'd be a really cool interview to, to have on the podcast. So shoot me an email or a DM and, and let's, let's try to make that happen. All right. In the Christian tradition, we are in the first week of Advent. Advent is a four-week season that comes before Christmas. It's a time of preparation for the coming of God incarnate in the world. It's a time of contemplation and reflection and a recentering and a refocusing of oneself in the divine dance of this, this life with our God. I want to share a prayer one of my good friends from church, Megan Reef. She's a local artist and educator. She wrote uh, and shared this with our small group yesterday to kind of set our intentions for this first week. I thought it was just pointed and beautiful. Lord, this week, as we look forward to the celebration of the Incarnation, we take part in a centuries-old tradition, reminding us of our common ties to humans through the ages. Our human story is not stagnant or still, and as we meditate on the hope that your Incarnation brought, we also look forward to the continuation of the human story, but we hope for something much better. Let us not be still and only wait in hope, but to actively engage in bringing your hope to the world through love and kindness. May we not only participate in the celebration of your birth, but actively engage in your teaching and example to bring about a new world built in loving kindness, compassion, and equality. As we consider a tiny baby in a manger, born to a poor unmarried man and woman, may we learn to see the face of God in the most destitute, in the sick, the weak, the outcast. May we imagine a world where lives are mightier than dollars. And amassing wealth is not the greatest goal. Lord, we hope for these days, but let our hope be active. Strengthen us for the journey and renew our hope with discerning patience. Mm. Mm-mm. Thank you, sweet friend, for those words of hope and love. So now let's turn to our guests for the next two weeks. Reverend Michelle Wahila was born and raised in Endicott, New York. She graduated with honors from Grove City College in 2002 and received her Master's of Divinity from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary in 2005. Michelle was ordained to the Ministry of Word and Sacrament in the Presbyterian Church USA. 
in 2005, and Michelle is the creator and owner of Ruffled by Grace, Parisian Wedding Blessings. She serves as an officiant for couples seeking personalized spiritual wedding blessings or to renew their wedding vows in Paris. She works with a team of professionals to offer creative and tailored services that reflect the uniqueness of every couple. Can't wait to share this one with y'all. Hope you enjoy. Here is Reverend Wahila. All right, Michelle, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I am originally from Endicott, New York, which no one knows, but it's upstate and it's a lovely, just rural place to grow up and green grass and trees. Did you grow up in the Presbyterian Church? I did, actually. I grew up yeah. my mom with my mom taking me um, to Google Presbyterian Church uh, every Sunday. And um, later on, didn't realize quite how maybe progressive it was until I you know, left and came back, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I had a good kind of Presbyterian upbringing. Yeah. Now the Presbyterian church split. I don't know what year that was. Do you remember? Uh, sometime in the early eighties, I believe was okay. one of the, the splits that would have separated, uh, the women's voices particularly. Yeah. yeah. So I'm Presbyterian church USA. I yeah. grew up in that tradition and also in more danger. Yeah. You are the first Presbyterian I think I've had on. Ah, no way. Which is wild because I have a lot of Presby friends, but I, I guess I just haven't gotten them on here yet. Well, there's time. There's, there's yes. Time. <laughs> <laughs> but you, so you grew up in PCUSA though. I did. I did. Okay. okay, that's cool. And that's where you got ordained. And. What was that community like growing up? You said you didn't realize it was more progressive until you came back. Yeah, I think growing up in this sort of rural immigrant town, first of all, most of my friends were Catholic. So that was really, I thought I was the sole Protestant on the planet for a long time. (laughs) Um, But then I didn't maybe realize that you know, women's voices even are not always welcome in the church because I grew up having a great woman interim pastor. Um, so it was, it sort of wasn't until later that I even realized it was an issue to have mm-hmm. a woman in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. My brother used to go to a Presbyterian church that they didn't allow women leadership. And I'm like, don't you see how problematic this is? Like, why would you support this institution? And I, like, I had to have this whole conversation with him. Um, and my sister-in-law is super progressive too. So I was just like, what are you guys doing? What are we doing? You know, like my Catholic friends, I think it's difficult if you grow up or you're in such a good community, it's difficult to, what's the word, sacrifice those things for a fundamental value you really believe in. I think that's totally true. I mean, sometimes I think it's just ease of, going to a community because maybe there isn't another community that you feel welcome in or, you know, there's so many reasons, but I think, and at least my own journey at some point you start to draw some lines in the sand um, Mm. for exactly the reasons like what you're saying. I mean, you Mm. have to make some choices and sometimes they're really hard. Yeah. So how was, how I want to understand your journey to ordination. So 
did you study theology in undergrad? I know you went to divinity school, obviously, to get ordained, but where did your interest in faith and church start? Well, it definitely started in that little country church. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in high school, um, even before that, I guess junior high, I had in my mind that I was going to be a professional dancer and mm-hmm. kind of on track to do that. Got hurt, seriously hurt, like five knee surgeries later. Oh, wow. hurt. Um, and realized that was not really going to be my path. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think for a a junior high schooler, that's super disorienting. And I thought this path that I had was, you know, it was just, my life was crushing before me, (laughs) but my mom really encouraged me to get involved at church. It was already a place I loved and felt safe and could be myself. And I started getting involved in more mission projects and nonprofits in my hometown um, to serve particularly those who are hungry um, in our our little Mm -hmm. rural town. And I just felt my heart expand and and really that was the start of it. But I think that was paired with the fact that I had a really great pastor at the time who, who like was a real person. (laughs) Right. Right. And so like those two things sort of corresponded at a time that was really pivotal for me. And, so before I knew it, I was studying theology in undergrad and, and mm. just followed the path. That's so cool. So did you know in undergrad that's what you were leaning towards ministry? Definitely. I don't think I knew where it would take me. I mean, still to this day, where is it going to take me? <laughs> but I think I had a sense, a strong sense of call and whether or not that meant I was going to be on the mission field, like in a traditional mission role or serving a parish traditionally. I mean, I felt like it would, it would lead me somewhere where I could be used. And, and that's really what mattered at, the, at that point. And so it's, you know, faithful step by faithful step, it sort of un, unfolded. Yeah. And what's, can you talk a little bit about what the ordination process is like in the Presbyterian church? It's all the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That you <laughs> <laughs> um, it's difficult. And I guess it's, it's difficult for good reason. You know, you have to, um, you have to fulfill a lot of seminary requirements. You need both languages instead of just one. You need proficiencies, um, not only in seminary, but the ordination exams you pass are very difficult. And, and then you do your field at that. I mean, similar to other denominations. And I know the process has changed dramatically since I went through it as well. But my friends who are going through it have had to take the exams on Hebrew and Greek. And I'm like, dang, like my tradition doesn't do that, I don't think. Um, so the presbys are serious. Yeah. And that's partially because of the, just the reformed tradition and that they yeah. are scholars and that they want yeah. people to be scholars. And, and now I really appreciate I that. appreciate it too, very much. You know, it's awesome that I had this great background, but at the time, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to survive this right. moment. And yeah. Yeah. Did you do CPE somewhere? So um, instead of doing CPE, I chose to take uh, an international mission kind of um, path, uh, which it was really strange. It was sort of like I had this choice and I had to make it. And because serving people sort of in this way had always been in my heart, I just said, I'm just going to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Before I knew it, I found myself in Haiti and then subsequently serving a nonprofit there for years on their board. 
Um, so it was really actually an, an awesome choice. And Very I'm so cool. glad I did it. That yeah. is so cool. And for my friends who don't know, CPE's clinical pastoral education, which is usually done in hospital chaplaincy, which is what I know oh, that runs the gamut of most traditions, put their folks in that. Mine does a lot too. Um, but I've heard too of people going, um, especially in Oklahoma, like w- teaching on reservations and things. Um, there's all sorts of things you could do, but what, what exactly was your work in Haiti? So I worked with a nonprofit organization that had, it was a sustainability project rather than an aid project. And I uh-huh. think that's a really important yeah. distinction. Uh, it had been there for over 20 years at that point, successfully reforesting, but more than that, rebuilding communities mm-hmm. uh, and having people invest in it, not just missionaries come in and do the work and leave. Right. So I really got behind, um, what was happening there and you know and yeah I saw things that I never could imagine up until the point of going there and mm-hmm. myself physically more than I ever had either you know like to cleanse and mountain you know the, just the yeah. elevation changes and such it was really hard work um yeah but it you know it completely changed my heart for just the world and I think mm-hmm. was the first step in you know then eventually moving internationally selling all yeah, of our really say, goods did that, moving did that plant the seed of like going all the way to France totally and I mean there was a time when we thought we were gonna be in Haiti my husband and I and then um I ended up pregnant and we thought maybe delivering oh, our first child in Haiti was not what we should be doing but yeah. it definitely planted a seed that that put in our minds that the great big God who created this world can do so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. Mm-hmm. And that we wanted to be somehow part of that more than just what we were seeing in, in the American church, uh, you know, in the United States or, or just what was around us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So I think that's one of the cool, that's one of the most, I think frightening, but most exciting parts of serving the church is you have to be open to be called wherever in the, literally in the world (laughs) you're called. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm starting the process right now. I'm filling out all my paperwork right now for the Episcopal church. And, um, I'm a little terrified, you know, like I may have to uproot and leave my home, which I've done. And I've, I've been all over the world too, but I don't know. It's, it's just later, like I'm kind of doing this a little bit later in life. I'm in my thirties now and it's like, okay, I have to uproot again probably and change my direction. But that's like part of the deal, right? It is. And it's, it is super scary. I mean, I never would have imagined I'm an only child from a rural upstate New York like village. Never imagined myself living across the ocean for my family. Mm -hmm. Um, here I am and I think it's right where we're supposed to be for this moment so you know you have to be open and what was that like spiritually for you um kind of letting go and trusting in God and God's plan like this is an ongoing I think human if you're a any sort of spiritual person like thing that we struggle with and have to deal with. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately in this ordination process is how do I stop planning everything and stop trying to have control, but like 
trusting and letting letting go? I mean, that is the single hardest part of <laughs> my faith journey. And I, I think it's partially because of who I am and type A. I like to control things, if you will, I like to be organized, like all of the things that essentially make you a good leader, mm-hmm. um, but can make you a really poor disciple of Jesus <laughs> if you're right. not careful. Like, um, and I think we still even now as a family, we, we struggle with that because we're in our seventh year here in France and we kind of get to this point of the year every year and, and say, okay, what are we doing? Where do we feel called to be? Are we supposed to be here or somewhere else or back in the U S and it's a, a constant discernment process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that journey to France and what, what brought that about and how does that work? Cause I've not, I can't think of a friend right now who's taken a call abroad. I know lots of people who've done a lot of mission work or summer trips to work on whatever fighting aids in Africa or something. But what, what was that like? And yeah, yeah just so it's definitely different. I think than taking like a traditional mission call in the field because here I was moving essentially from one parish to the next. So I was going to serve right. a congregation. And um, so I had to kind of get my mind around this context of like serving an English speaking congregation in a non English speaking mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> country. And um, that, that was kind of an interesting um, But um, the other part of, this story was that I wasn't looking for a job when I started the process of, course, of, course. of interviewing for the job that took us to France. So, um, you know, people are put in your lives at certain times for certain reasons, mm-hmm. I think. And, and that was just, it so happened to be that someone said, there's this job and I think you'd be perfect for it. You should apply. And I said, no. Um, and then jokingly snapped a picture of the job position sent it to my husband and said, look this is my next job and <laughs> nine months later we were moving our family across the ocean so it it was a crazy thing where all these doors opened and and, and we prayed like possibly like the most unceasingly we had ever prayed in our lives yeah. for, for God to just speak to us about the place that we should be yeah and and lo and behold it happened so yeah, it was about nine months from start to finish, the process wow. of discernment. And, I mean, like searching for a job in the Presbyterian Church um, in the U.S., there it's this dance of call where the church is discerning and you are discerning. And mm-hmm. they are interviewing a mm-hmm. hundred different people and, and you are interviewing them. And so it's this long, sometimes arduous process mm-hmm. of finding the right match. Mm-hmm. That's why it took so long and that's um yeah and that's why it was, it was yeah <laughs> more, than, more than half a year um before we ended up coming mm-hmm. and you were you were previously just serving one community yeah i was serving as an associate pastor in in pittsburgh pa in, pittsburgh. in a great church yeah. uh, a large community there uh, right in the city great great people I still you know to this day my heart really yeah. when I think about Pittsburgh my heart expands because it's a great city 
And that was a great, great call. Yeah. How long were you there? Uh, I was there just about 10 years as their associate and uh, almost four years before that as the director of Christian education. Wow. That's a long time in one community. That's amazing. Particularly for an associate, you know, the average associate stay is like two years, you know, so um, it's crazy to think about um, actually having been there that long, but it was so formative and I had such a great colleague and that really only comes around once in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm so glad I had that time. Was that community supportive of you taking the call in France or were they having a hard time with that? Yeah, I mean, it was with great sadness and great joy, I think, that I left that call because they had seen so many of my major life transitions. They had Mm -hmm. seen me graduate from seminary and be ordained. I was installed for the first time in that church. Uh, They saw me get married. Mm -hmm. They saw me have two children. All the things. It was all the things. (laughs) So, you know, someone from that congregation helped us buy our first house, you know, it was just (laughs) Really, all of these major, major life transitions that happened for our family there. And so mm-hmm. I don't think we could help but have a great love and an affinity, mm-hmm. you know, for mm-hmm. the people there. But um, again, I, I just looking back now and hearing the stories of so many of my female colleagues, like I could not be more thankful that mm-hmm. that's where I spent my, my mm-hmm. formative years you know developing pastoral identity right that's that's wonderful um so i know you're just not currently at the parish church you were called to but what type of church was that and what was your role there so um the american church in paris is a large anglophone community here in paris it is an interdenominational Protestant church. Mm-hmm. It was started um, by people of various Protestant backgrounds. It, it's not non-denominational in the sense that there were Methodists, there were Presbyterians, right. there were people from these sort of mainline traditions that yeah. came together to start the community. Uh, but it's a really international community. There are, is a large African population, Filipino population. Yeah. There are French and Australians and English and Americans all in this community. And it really serves as a community sort of hub for Anglophones Mm -hmm. here in Paris. And I was serving as the associate pastor there as well. Mm -hmm. um, A very large uh, staff and got to do many of the same things I did in Pittsburgh in terms of family ministry, uh, Mm -hmm. community service, uh, community life serving mission, many of the same tasks, just on a, in a different place on a different scale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. That's really, really interesting. And your husband was cool. Like he's been on board. Like I keep thinking about him in the back of my mind. I'm like, this guy, like what a guy. He's just <laughs> like. <laughs> he is much more the risk taker than I am. So it's kind of wild, right? That I am the one that was like, to move to France. <laughs> but he was an amazing support, of course, through the whole thing. But I think he, you know, he thrives here, which is just so interesting because mm. he has picked up the language so well. He loves his work. It's just incredible to see him. I feel like he's come into his own in so many ways after mm. moving here. 
Um, but I can, I feel like I couldn't have done that transition without him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was so wild. It was so wild to be like, for him to say, yeah, I think you will get this job. Like, no, 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 no. Um, but then to actually pack up your house and move right. and be completely like deer in headlights is crazy. And I, I'm glad I did it with him. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like, I wonder what it would be like if you didn't have a family or, or a partner to go do something so out of your comfort zone and just how much that means to you and your um, just your well-being and your ability to be a, a priest. Not that I'm sure you could on your own do these things, but I think that's what's so nice about the Protestant traditions, allowing priests to have families. Um, I mean, I desire that. I want that in my life. Um, but just how much, I don't know. You're just a little more anchored. Yeah, totally. I think that he you know, he grew up Catholic. So mm-hmm. the whole Protestant tradition was, was new and interesting to him. And, um, he definitely has a deep faith that I, I feel like I learned from him in so many ways. So even though I might be the one called into professional ministry, uh, I, I just find him a good spiritual counterpart and mm-hmm. friend as well. And, I think I'm really lucky. I know other people who have taken uh, similar calls and it you know, can be quite lonely in the international community when you're serving the church because that's your English speaking community and right. that's what you've got. And yet you are a spiritual leader and you are somehow different. Right. Right. Well, I wanted to kind of end the last section with these more personal spiritual questions of, um, what what is saving your life right now? That's the first one. <laughs> oh, so much. Um, <laughs> I think um, one of the things about moving internationally is that you end up with these fast friends that you never have otherwise had. <laughs> um, but somehow there is just like a deep connection because of what you're going through. And so I have a lot of friends who, no matter what stage we are in, no matter what we are suffering, no matter what we are going through, like they are there. And some of them are gone now from Paris. Mm -hmm. So I would say that really living life together is is just such a saving grace Mm -hmm. for me and has been. I mean, these many years that we've been in Paris, but Right now, I find myself reflecting on that a lot and just being so thankful because I don't think I'd be even where I am right in this moment without that friendship. Not just my husband, but particularly really strong women of faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's been just an amazing, um, an amazing thing that God has given me. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. What was I going to say about that? Are those folks you've met through the church or in other places in Paris? Uh, Many of, yes, many of the women directly through the church where I served. And like I said, a lot of them are gone and yet they are still my people. They're the people I text every day Mm -hmm. and the people who, um, there is just a transparency there Mm -hmm. that came out of many of the like really difficult transitions of, that face that expats face mm-hmm. while like 
moving and living abroad. Yeah, it, it was a that community that really a huge part of my life. Yeah, that's key. I still text a ton of my divinity school friends. And even if it's just a one-off question, like, give me some resources to preach about whatever. And, you know, they're in two seconds, like, can send me a a thought or a resource. Um, But yeah, there is a bonding that comes from those particular experiences you have in life that you share that you just can't you can't force or create that connection anyway else. Um, Correct. Yeah, it's so absolutely. Rich. It's so rich. Um, what What do you think is important about being a woman doing your work in the church? I think that without women in the church, that female voice is is just missing. The church suffers when there is not the female voice and. Mm-hmm without people who are willing to be looked down upon for the choices that they're making to go into the ministry, to go into the pulpit, um, without those people, the church misses out. And um, so I think we continuously need to like, focus on the women coming up through seminary, giving them the tools, the, the encouragement um, to build a courageous voice. Um, I'm, you know, I'm glad that I had good mentors and, and now I'm always honored to walk with other women through mm-hmm. um, through the seminary portion of life. Um, <laughs> and then once you know, once you get out and you're going to take on the world, I think it's also important to just build that community of women around you. That mm-hmm. those people you can text and ask for resources or encouragement or prayer. Um, but without us, you know, without those voices, the church loses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and like you like you said, the formation, especially through seminary, like when I was going through Vanderbilt um, and I chose Vanderbilt because it was so diverse and there were so many women professors and there's, there were two at the time. No, there ended up being three female Episcopal priests on campus and they just were so, so formative for me and my development. Um, So I just, I, I flourished because of them. So without, female voices and roles like you're right the church is missing so much so so much um last question what do you guys ever in your liturgies in wherever context you've been use female imagery for god and is that something that's important to you um and how does that work (laughs) for you I think it's always a matter of sort of smashing the patriarchy, but um, <laughs> I like to push people to use those female images mm-hmm. because that voice is there. It's certainly throughout scripture. And mm-hmm. whenever you use it, it, it does sometimes shock people. And mm-hmm. I like that idea of shocking people, not just for the shock factor, although that's great, um, but it helps people to see that they've put God in a box. And mm-hmm. if they can see that, then there are so many other things that you can begin to see. Mm-hmm. And so even just a simple switch of a pronoun or a certain way of describing God, if that helps somehow draw out an experience of God that is new and different for someone, like that helps them grow, that yes. that pushes the church forward. And so 
think it's really important. And even if, <laughs> even if it's just for shock factor, it should be, um, it should be utilized over mm-hmm. and over and over again. Yeah. I think that's where we get in trouble a lot of times is when we get too comfortable with our faith or comfortable with our images of God. Cause then I think we're missing it, you know? Absolutely. And I, even though I grew up in a somewhat progressive Christian community, we still use very traditional language for God. So I even catch myself sometimes just using that male pronoun and thinking, wait a minute, I have to, I have to step back here. Mm-hmm. It's just habit. And, and I don't think, our habits are necessarily healthy when it comes to how we think about God. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's like wedding liturgy or, you know, Advent liturgy, whatever it it comes to, if we can take a step back and think about why we're using the words we're using, we have the chance to grow and Mm -hmm. and somehow expand our vision of who God is. And, And that's for me, that's what the life of faith is all about. So creating something new or modern or just, editing something traditional is a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your thoughts on that first part. It's so cool to get to know you and hear your, your path and your story. Thanks again, Reverend Michelle, for sharing your story with us. Paris is so dang lucky to have you. And I can't wait to share our second conversation next week. Michelle and I dive into her unique and brilliant entrepreneur business, Ruffled by Grace, a Parisian wedding and marriage blessing service based in the gospel values of radical love and hospitality. And as always, y'all, please follow us on all the social media outlets and consider donating to Theosophia on our Patreon page. We will see y'all next week for round two with Reverend Michelle. Have a great week, y'all. Peace. Peace.